Well, church, uh, I get to preach the word to you this morning. And I'm really thankful for that. I recognize the importance of this moment. And I don't want it to be overlooked. You have been a tremendous support for me these past few months. And I thank you deeply. I, I cherish being your pastor. I really, really do. I am overjoyed to open the word this morning and preach. And I am thankful to shepherd you under the authority of Jesus, our chief shepherd, I also recognize that your attendance is a reception of my ministry in the word and under my care. And I trust you have received me as your pastor. You received me as your pastor, and I thank you for receiving me as your pastor. So thank you. Amen. Let's open to Psalm 23. Really, over the next uh, probably five or six weeks, uh, the, just what the Lord has on my heart to, to bring to us as a church in the Word is just the outflow of what He's done in me over the past few months during my, my sabbatical and my break to just rest and be before the Lord. Uh, the Lord has done some just really deep heart work uh, that recognized some deficiencies that I was walking with in my own relationship with the Lord. And so these next series that we'll start next week is, is pursuing God with everything that we are. And we will uh, just look, and, and I trust you will sense what the Lord has been doing in me and just the overflow, the outflow of what that is. Uh, but this, this unique psalm, uh, I have felt the Lord's shepherding of me over the past few months. And it has been, it's been miraculous. It really has. This psalm is the most famous poem I think there is in any language, and rightfully so. But let's see what the Lord would have for us this morning. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Lord, we ask that by the power of the Spirit, you would convey your presence to us. And we would hold on. Uh, really, our hold would just remind us of the hold you have on us. So thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, we've heard this psalm maybe countless times. We've read it countless times. And when we ever grow familiar with things, particularly when we grow familiar with this psalm, we can miss the point. And so it's good for us to slow down a little bit so we can feel the point of what David was writing. King David wrote this, and we want to we make sure we're, we're catching it because we don't want uh, an, the nostalgia of something to take away from its message. You know, we do that with the nativity scenes too. 
the nostalgia of what we're seeing there, even in miniature form like we have in the back. And you always see a, it's a nativity that's in miniature form. It's more about nostalgia sometimes than it is about the message of Jesus becoming one of us to deliver us. And we don't want to do that with any scripture. But the more familiar we become, actually, I, in my, um, earlier this year, I found that in my own devotional reading of the word, I was anticipating what was being said to where I was missing what I was reading. And I actually changed uh, versions of the Bible to read. I, I typically have read the English Standard Version, the ESV, for years, just reading it, reading it. But I said, I, I think I need to train my brain to pay more attention. So I, uh, there's a, a new version out called the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible that uh, the Lifeway Resources has put out, just so I can... I can think better. I can grapple with it. And I've had to slow down and read things. So we, we can miss the point if we become too familiar with things. But at its core in this psalm, this is not a funeral psalm. And sadly, that's where we always hear it. Yeah, there's a, there's a point about the shadow of death. But it's even, if it was a funeral psalm, it would be even though I walk through death, you're with me. And we trust that. It's appropriate to say those things. But this is walking through the valley of the shadow of death. This psalm is one of David's first psalms that he wrote. And we remember the early parts of David's story in 1 Samuel. He wrote this psalm under the intense pressure of King Saul's pursuit of him to kill him. Saul is pursuing out of jealousy, fear of losing the kingdom to David. He's, uh, David has taken down Goliath. And so there's this, uh, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. A song that the Israelites would sing. Saul's jealous. He's fearful. He wants to kill David, a rival to his throne. And David writes this psalm while he's on the run, perhaps living in cave after cave after cave. He's writing this psalm after he's maybe doubting the fact that God promised him that he would be the king over Israel. How will this ever come about? So he's writing a psalm when, when he's doubting the promise that God gave to him. David wrote this psalm when he was at the end of his rope. He had no other options, no other way going forward. And that's why this psalm speaks so wonderfully and powerfully to us. We all know the feelings of fear and doubt. And we know those feelings that stir in us because we, went, we begin to wonder about God in every category. God, will you show up in any category? Are you, are you there for me in any way? We all know the direness when all options are exalted, which just leads to our own physical, mental, spiritual exhaustion. This is our psalm for when we're at the end of our rope. See, David wrote this psalm. It's the, kind of the big caption for us. David wrote this psalm to remind himself and us of the never-failing truth of God's active presence in the darkness of our lives. See, when we encounter the valley of the shadow of death and darknesses, we question God's presence. Are you there at all? David's reminding himself. Ultimately, the Holy Spirit's reminding us. He is actively present with us when we feel like he's most distant. We first need to take note of the first verse. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That's the most important verse. That's, he, he begins with the proposition. He begins with the main point. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He is the shepherd. God Almighty is the shepherd of his people. And it happens in such a way that it calms his people's hearts. It calms their desires. Now what he does in verses 2 and 3 and 4, 5, 6, he just opens up what this means. 
both of God's experience, his shepherding of us, but also of our, our receiving and him leading us in the valleys, but also in this presence that is so active. David knew, uh, David was a shepherd himself and knew the intimacy of a shepherd and his sheep. And what David's seeking to convey is that God is intimately involved with his people's lives. And this is an enormous truth. God is intimately involved with his people. He doesn't leave us. He doesn't let us wander until we find our way to him. He's actively involved. Martin Luther, when in talking about uh, God as a shepherd, he says this, the other names for God sound somewhat too gloriously and majestically and bring, as it were, an awe and fear with them when we hear them uttered. This is the case when the scripture calls our God, uh, calls God our Lord, King, Creator. This, however, is not the case with the sweet word shepherd. It brings the godly when they read it or hear it as it were a confidence, a consolation, a security like the word father. And that's what we should feel when we hear that word shepherd. God is shepherding his people. In verses 2 and 3, we see that the, how the Lord shepherds us. Here's the shepherding of the Lord. There's green pastures and still waters. God leads us to sustenance and refreshment in our lives with him. He leads us to places of rest to feed our souls and to refresh our spirit. Our difficulty comes when we try to choose which greener pastures we would like the Lord to give us and lead us to. The greener grass we look for is typically rooted in our comparisons of others. We compare what they have, what we don't have. We compare their ease. We have it difficult. They have it easy. All these comparisons breed in us a discontentment for where we're walking today. So we just look out and say, if I I just had that, or if I was just over there, or if I just had this relationship, then my life would be easier. Then, Then those would be the greener pastures. But those greener pastures are typically just mirages because when we get there, there's another greener pasture that we look at and we think that, that no, no, that's going to satisfy because this one didn't satisfy us. We also have opinions on what will refresh us. We think we know uh, the greener pastures we should go to and we also ask the Lord, hey, can you lead me to that stream because I'd like to be refreshed by that still water right there. Maybe not realizing that it's contaminated water and it would be bad for us. We want the waters of our own choosing, which are typically rooted in our desire for quick solutions. We have uncomfortable situations, issues, and people in our lives, and we look for quick solutions to deal with them. We look for those refreshing waters. If I just could get this out of the way, then life would feel a little better. So what do we do? Well, if I just lived over there, if I just lived in that place, or if I, if I can just go on a vacation to that place, we look at a location to be fresh waters and refreshment for us. Possessions. If I just had this, then everything would be all right. Financial security, all of us. If we, we just had this amount of money, then things would work a little better. If, we, if, if the business had this much bottom line, then we would feel a little better about life. So we look for these things as what we think will give us refreshment to make us really feel better about our own lives. It's our own idea that we're asking God to bless God. If you give me this, then things will be good. Like we sang earlier, his way is better for us. 
But we constantly go to the Lord and say, God, if you really just do it this way, this will be the best thing. And he says, is that right? Is that what you think? Usually we don't know the best way because what he's looking to do is refresh us, refresh us with the water of his spirit. Not the still waters that we think, not the green pastures that we think will bring the relaxation and the relief of our, of our lives. God leads us to places of rest that he chooses so we understand that that's what's best for us. The shepherd and the sheep are intertwined in this experience. See, the shepherd is not leading the sheep simply to greener pastures so they can get a little rest. What the, she- the shepherd's doing is saying, I'm going to go to that greener pasture because I know uh, the, the, risk of, the risk of attack from wolves or lions is going to be reduced, so I'll get some rest too. So look what happens. God, as our shepherd... He's looking for something along. The shepherd is looking to experience something along with the sheep. God is looking to experience something along with us. He's looking to experience the intimacy of his relationship with us. But when he brings us to those green pastures, when he brings us to the still waters, he's inviting us to to taste of his rest. Remember, he rested on the seventh day. He's still in that rest. And he invites us to experience that rest with him. The sheep enjoy the rest of the shepherd. And in verse 3, we find that he's restoring souls and leading in right paths, paths of righteousness. For something to need restoring implies that it's weary, it's run down, and it's wandering. God, as our shepherd, retrieves us from our weariness. He retrieves us from our exhaustion. He retrieves us from our wandering, our, our desire for greener pastures or stiller waters in order to revive us and renew us in the way that he wants. And look, this experience in our lives, this experience of retrieving and reviving, there's an ebb and flow to it. Some, some seasons of our lives, it's more intense. You need to come over here, stop wandering over there. Other times, we're just feeling it. We're feeling the reviving. We're feeling that refreshing. So the, God's care for his people, he leads, he guides, he controls the flow of life for his flock. Now remember this. Shepherds are usually not in a hurry, are they? There's not a destination they need to arrive at with a sheep. Like, let's go, come on, let's get, come on, sheep, let's get over. Shepherds aren't in a hurry. God's never in a hurry. And we're like, God, if you just answer really quickly on this one, I promise I won't ask you to answer quickly again. Make these little bargains. God's not in a hurry. Because he wants us to experience something of him. The renewal doesn't come in a few steps. The renewal comes in a life of intimacy with the shepherd that brings the spiritual reviving that we're asking God for all along. Remember, he, he brings us to the places, locations of his choosing. He brings us to a restored soul and has a righteousness for his own choosing, of his own choosing, because that's best for us. All of God's efforts to care for his sheep, they have a destination. And his destination is himself. Now, you're tempted to think, well, the destination is righteousness, right? Paths of righteousness. No, that describes the path. That doesn't describe the destination. The destination is God himself. He wants us to experience him. 
Righteousness, the path of righteousness, leads us to the, in, in the destination toward God himself. Righteousness shows up in two very powerful ways in our lives, in our justification and in our sanctification. When we trust Christ for salvation, we're then clothed with his righteousness in a spiritual sense, and we are welcomed into God's presence forever. It's a one-time action where God says, All of Christ's righteousness, all of your sin is put on him so his righteousness can be put on you. What does that give us access to? God himself forever. Now, righteousness also shows up in our sanctification. Our sanctification, totally lost my spot in my notes. I wanted to read this part. All right, when we live in his presence, we are then given a new identity, which is righteous. But we are also empowered to live out our new identity. Sanctification is becoming who God has already made us on the inside in the spirit. He's made us righteous. So as we obey the Lord, as we, as we embrace the power of the spirit, what's happening? Our, the new identity that we have because of justification is then becoming who we live out. We, we, we live out the Jesus that we're counted with. We live out the, the righteousness that we're counted with in our hearts. And when our new identity shines, our thoughts, our choices, our actions, they have the imprint of our righteousness, our new righteousness that is Christ himself. God protects his path also. He protects the path toward our destination to him by securing the outcome. He works for our righteousness. What does this say? For his name's sake. Does Does this make God selfish in any way? He's doing it for him? He's doing it for us? I thought he was selfish. Is he selfish? Does this make God's love for us tainted a little bit because he doesn't do things for us but for himself? No, in no way. See, God's work for his glory is not about his selfishness or anybody's selfishness. It's about security. God promises himself to do something because that's the only way it's going to get done. If he waits around for us to do it, guess what? We're never going to do it. And if he waits around for us to get to him, we'll never get to him. Because we'll continue wandering, and then we'll get exhausted, and then we'll just give up. Because it's too hard. God, God's paths of righteous for his namesake, it's about security. He's telling all who would be his sheep that our arrival to him, the destination of God himself, is secured by his glory, not by our performance. God is swearing to himself to bring us to him. Same thing he did with Abraham when he had Abraham sleep. And there's, a, a, there's animals that are laid, cut like this and laid. And God walks in between those. God was promising to Abraham but to himself to bring about the promise for Abraham. Same thing happens with us. He's bringing about the desire he wants for us by his own power, by his own greatness. Ezekiel 36, long passage, but this is very helpful. It's the biggest answer to God doing things for his own sake. The prophet Ezekiel says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Now, hold on. Sure sounds like they're being corrected, right? 
bunch of idiots. You haven't done what you're supposed to do. Now, I'm just, I, now I have to clean up your mess. I'm going to do it. See, that's what it sounds like. But he says, I'm going to vindicate my holiness, what? Through you. See, God does things to us, very strange ways. Because he welcomes us into the, he welcomes us into the, the glorious opportunity to broadcast his holiness and his glory through our lives forevermore. Pick up in verse 24. He said, I will vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from your, all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart. Here's how God uses his people and a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. See how God answers our calamity? The fact that we can never, ever perform for him enough. We can never get to him in our own strength, by our own desires, by our own merit or will. We cannot get to him because of our sin. So he says, here's what I'm going to do. The heart you have to me is stone. It's rock hard, insensitive to anything I have for you in any presence or love that, that I want you to experience. I'm going to remove that, put a heart of flesh so you can, you can be sensitive to my love and my presence. But not just that. That heart of flesh is going to pump with the power of the Spirit himself. And God says, that's how you're going to walk this out. Before you walked it out, before the Spirit is in us, we're trying to walk things out. We're stumbling. We just get angry and we give up. So God says, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you my Spirit. Now, this is, it's been his plan since before the foundations of the earth. That's why we look at, at, at the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Why did they, why'd they fail? We should ask that question. Why in the world did they fail? Perfect people, no sin in a perfect place. Why did they fail? Because God said, it's insufficient for you simply just to be here around my presence. I want my presence to be in you. And so God, in his wisdom, he lets everything play out. Sin coming in, and he uses that, becomes, he becomes on top of that sin. And he says, this, I, I, I'm going I'm to prove my wisdom. I'm going to take the sin. I'm going to use that. It's going to have its fulfillment in Jesus killing death itself in order for the spirit to go inside of God's people. He says, I, I put my spirit in you. That's been his plan. And I'll cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that, that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Now there's the tenderness. It's a shepherding. I will deliver you from all your uncleanness and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I'll make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant that you may never suffer again the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways. And your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves for the iniquities and your abominations. There's regret. But he says, look, that, that regret's not going to last. And the regret is not the motivation to be better. We can't, we can't uh, make ourselves feel bad enough in order to obey Jesus well enough. We trust the Spirit. We trust the Spirit that he's made to live inside of us. His Spirit. He says again in verse 32, it's not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord. Let that be known to you. 
We're not the sole intention of God's recreative work. He is. You know what that helps us understand? We can't mess up his plan. All our foolishness, all our pride, we cannot mess up his plan. He will complete his plan. He will do it. If God were to wait for us to be good enough, it would ne- we would never arrive at the destination of who he is. He gives us his spirit to empower our new and renewed life so we can get to God. Philippians 1.6, the Apostle Paul says this. I'm sure of this, that he who began good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God's still active and he's still working his plan. And we... And just rest in the freedom. We can't mess up that plan. Because he's going to keep on coming after us. And verse 6 says that. We get to verse 4. Here's the crux. The crucial moments of God's shepherding. It's, and it tells us how deep his shepherding goes. David's reminded himself of the glory of God's character that shows up in his shepherding of, of David. But also his people. In verse 4. David gets to the heart of the matter. God's nearness when there's nothing left to hold on to. Because God shows up in the valley. Now, David does not hold out hope that he won't be in the valley. He doesn't pray that. He doesn't act like that. He actually confirms the reality of the valley that we all will experience as God's people. See, God brings us to pastures and to still waters and to paths for when he leads us in the valley as well. Because just like he's leading and guiding and controlling, sometimes he wants, to, wants us to walk through this valley so we understand he's with us. We will walk through valleys that feel like death itself is the only relief. The valleys may be so deep, you know, and, and think of a valley in the winter when the sun doesn't reach its peak. In some valleys in the mountains, the sun never reaches the bottom of that valley. There's daylight that just bounces off places, but maybe, maybe you see the sun, but, but you can get low enough in that valley that you never see the sunlight because it never rises above the mountains. See, that's, that's the shadow of death that David's describing. The shadow of death are those deep, dark crises that we encounter on our path to God. We, we endure winters of loneliness, winters of despair, winters of fear, mental exhaustion, emotional stress, spiritual dryness, physical pain, or just flat out battling sin and never feeling like we can overcome it. This is what the valley of the shadow of death is about. And even though we know it's coming, we don't have to fear. David says, I Fear no evil. Because why? You, you are with me. You are with me. See what's going to come later after David is long gone. God's going to prove this you are with me in two very powerful ways. One is going to be when three young gentlemen are taken from Israel, taken into captivity in Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar being the just the conceited ruler that he was, builds a huge statue of himself, and he says, everybody bow down. When you hear the music, everybody bow down. And three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, we're not going to do that, king. 
What did they do? They made a picture of their faith. Listen, they knew God had the power, but they didn't, they didn't know if he really would deliver them. They knew their future was secure. They didn't know their presence was secured in the way that would out, bring the outcome of their physical preservation. So they say, King, you can throw us in that fiery furnace. Our God is able to deliver us, even if he doesn't. What faith? Even if he doesn't. Be it known to you, O King, we will never bow down. We will never bow to your statue, to your image. We will only bow ourselves to him. Get thrown in there, and what happens? There's another in the fire. There's always another in our fire. What's God doing? He's showing, hey, I am with you. I am with you. Let's take it to the New Testament with Jesus. Remember when the the demonic forces of hell are crashing these waves into a boat to try to kill Jesus so he doesn't fulfill God's plan. The disciples are freaking out. They've seen storms before. This is a different storm. This this was something very different. They are freaking out. These guys aren't just new to the sea. They're fishermen. They're experienced. They've seen things before. And what they see this time was very different than anything they saw before. And where's Jesus? He's sleeping on the cushion, bottom of the boat. Jesus, don't you, see, don't you care about us? See, the, that valley was actually Jesus' valley as a man. But the disciples were feeling that valley. And they were thinking, death is going to come out of this. There's no, there's no other option but death. Jesus, can we just wake up and save us? See, Jesus' answer to them gives the clue of why he was able to sleep. He said, why were you afraid? I'm with you. I'm right here. See, Jesus knew the Father's presence was with him the whole time. So he was at peace. I want to live like that. I want to live with that type of peace. It's able to know that the forces of hell themselves can rise up against us. But he's with us. He's with us in the fire. He's with us in the boat. No matter where we feel that. And so this for you are with me. This is now our battle cry to combat all the shadows of darkness that ever seek to overtake us. So when we're feeling at our worst and we have nothing left on the rope to hold on to. We say, God, you are with me. Sometimes we need to say it long enough to where we really are convinced by it. It really does take root in our hearts because what's the outcome? comfort. When we consider God's leading and guiding, controlling us, it becomes clear that God's methods to shepherd us are for the purpose of us getting to know and experience his presence and to experience the comfort that is his presence. God's comfort calms our anxieties. It calms our anxious hearts and his comfort is in his presence. We don't want anything besides God's presence when we're truly comforted by his presence. That's why we don't want anything else. The Lord's my shepherd. He brings me into his presence and that restful place by his own choosing. I don't need, I don't need to look anywhere else. I don't need all the other things that cry for my attention. I don't need all the things that I think will bring an ease or an appeasement or a relief to my life because you're with me, God. More than that, I'm with you. You hold me and keep me in your presence. And he says, your rod and your staff, that's what comforts. Now, 
there's the, I've seen a few articles uh, really in the past several months that your rod and your staff, um, in terms of differentiating those in parenting techniques, I think that's a, this is a wrong place. This is an inappropriate place for us to look for parenting because that's really not, I think, what David's going after. David is saying your rod is that rod of defense. You will defend me. And the staff is a guiding and a leading. So these are tender. These are your rod and your staff. He's not saying, look, I, I just, your spankings, they really, they, they comfort me. That's weird. And that should hit us as weird. We shouldn't try to figure out how David really means that that's, no, he's saying your rod, it's like, you got that 50 cal machine gun you got right there? Yep, uh, I know you're going to pick off anything so I can sleep and I can rest and I can truly have the rest that I desire because just being in your presence comforts me. So it's a rod that defends. I love how we sang defender this morning because that's the picture. And the staff, he's going to continue leading. He's going to continue guiding. Now something, I, to my own shame, years ago I, I used the story that uh, sometimes uh, shepherds will break the legs of their sheep and their lambs to teach them a lesson and carry them on their shoulders. That's not reality. I don't know where that story got perpetuated, but shepherds are going, hey, we don't do that stuff. Not sure who thought of that or who did it. Sounds really nice. We don't do that. Why? They love their sheep. They love the lambs. They're not going to break a leg. No. Now they'll rescue them if their leg is broken. Sure. Put them on their shoulders. They'll do that. The intentionality is a little off. So we just need to to make sure that we have things the way that God intends them. But here's what David is saying. God is comforting me by his presence because I know he has won the battle. And for us, our application is he has won the battle with our flesh. He has won the battle with the world. Most importantly, he has won the battle with the devil himself, our enemy. So we don't have to fear attack. We don't have to fear going off the wrong way because he'll keep us safely guiding us. Now, he has not promised to guide us easily, but he has promised to guide us safely. And then what's the result? All of the shepherding for the the crux, the, the moment where we need him in the valley of the shadow of death. And in that valley, here's what we can experience. You prepare a table. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Look, this doesn't necessarily mean that God led him out of the valley to experience these things. God is saying, when you experience my presence, here's what you experience in the valley. He goes, there's a transition in the, uh, the, the personalness going from verse 4 to verse 5. Because God has been the shepherd and now he's a host. But deeper than that, he's a friend. The lavishness that he does, that he pours on David, ultimately pours on us, shows us that he's a friend. He prepares a table. Now, back in when this was written, and and today still, in Eastern thought, we're Western world and Eastern world, the the host, the, the preparations of the table were a reflection on the host, not the guest. Now, and I don't say this to make any lady feel bad, especially my wife, because when we have family over, we break out the paper plates. That's what we do. Like, let's make it easy on ourselves. We're not trying to impress anybody. Paper plates, clean up easy. This is good. 
Eastern thought is, you did what? Paper plates for your family? They're the most important people in your life. You need to bring out all the finest china. You need to bring every, get the goblets, get everything out on the table. Make a spread. And it shows the family what? They mean a lot to the host. So here, in this thought, you prepare a table before me is more about God, the shepherd, than it, it, God, the host friend, than it is about David. God's not looking at David saying, you mean a lot to me. I'm going to put out this spread. He's saying, God is saying, I cherish my work so much that when people hear about this, because look, when somebody does that for you, you go around and say, and they brought out the best china. They didn't have to do that. They bought out everything was so nice. It was great. It was just it had this extravagant spread. We feel the value in that, don't we? And that's what God's coming to us with. I have an extravagant... It makes me think of Luke 15. The story of the prodigal son. The word prodigal means extravagant. Really, it's a story about a prodigal God. Because that father was prodigal. Because the son comes home and what does he do? Get the fattened calf. We're having a feast. Now, the older brother was looking at the son, his brother, rather than the father. He misunderstood the father's love. So when he sees all this extravagance, what? He doesn't deserve this. You gave him this? See, because the older brother missed the value of being a son in the father's house. He, he's not worthy to be a son. He's not, you've never done this for me. He missed. You, you don't love me. You're loving him this way. You've never loved me this way. And the father who goes out to both sons, he says to the older one, All I have is yours. Everything I have, it's yours. The older son didn't know what he had. He was in the comparison game. He was looking for performance and merit to be the qualification of being a son. So was the younger son. I've blown it. Let me just go ask and be a hired servant. But the father, the father is extravagant in his love. So is our God who is extravagant in his love for us. And he anoints us. That's a symbol in the Old Testament uh, that priests and kings got in order, to be, in order to be welcomed into the presence of God and the service of the king of all glory. And remember, they had hosts would give oil to anoint feet and stuff. But this is head. This is my head. You anoint my head with oil. Everything. Not only are you extravagant in your love for me and, and communicating worth and value to me, you anoint my head with oil. I should be here when I don't feel like I should be here. I should be here because you anoint me and my cup overflows. It's the picture of him holding a chalice or a goblet and him, the host just pouring wine and and he continues overflowing. Lavish, extravagant. That's the feeling of God's presence in the valley of the shadow of death. That's what he wants us to experience. That's how he draws us in. He says, I want you to know my presence because the outcome and the overflow is joy. Joy, unspeakable and full of glory. The host values the guest with his extravagance. And this is a joy that is known within a deep friendship. Verse 6, the final thought. If God hasn't held anything back from his sheep, then surely his goodness and his mercy will follow, will pursue his sheep until his plan is completed. What is his staff? 
His staff is his mercy and his goodness. Surely his goodness and mercy, that's his staff. They'll follow me, they'll, they'll corral me, they'll pursue me until I'm in his presence forevermore. See, all of this shows us that dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's when we're, when we're dead from this life, when we're gone from this life. We have the experience with the foretaste of his presence, eternal presence now in the presence of his spirit, but we will have the reality of his eternal presence when we are with him forever. But it points us to the good shepherd, Jesus himself. In John 10, verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. Jesus says, that's right. The escape, the release from the oppression of sin that you desire and crave so much, I'll give it to you. I'll show you the green pasture and the still water, and I will be with you. See, Jesus, our shepherd, he walked through the valley of death, not just the shadow of death. He walked through the valley of death so we could be secured in his presence forever. Church, God's presence is active with us. In all of our crises. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead. So it made everything that he said true. It made everything about God true. His presence is active. Pursuing us. Capturing us. So we feel the glory of that comfort in his presence. Father, thank you so much. That our life with you is not up to us. It really is up to you. And our role today, God, is to trust you with it. I pray as we began our time together to trust you. I pray that we would continue to learn to trust you. God, we want to experience your presence. And we want to experience the the extravagant grace and love and goodness and mercy that you have for us. Every day, as you fulfill your plan to get us to you, do it, Father. Do it for your glory. Do it for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, let's be reminded we have a mission. We have a mission together as the people of God. Uh, we, We are heading toward God, and we are to gather others around us to head toward him as well. Let's be reminded in our commission. Go, therefore... And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. Amen.